so many changes with COVID, companies are having to update, if not change their strategy. One of their questions is going to be is, um, well, am I on net zero? Is my government serious about these transitions? Welcome to episode five of What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister for Climate Change and co-leader of the Green Party. Today, my conversation is with a finance advisor to the next Global Climate Talks and former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney. In the wake of the historic Paris Agreement, Mark helped to launch a new initiative to encourage businesses to evaluate and to communicate their exposure to climate risk. The work and the recommendations of the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures has influenced governments all over the world, including our own here in New Zealand, where we've been looking at introducing a system of climate reporting for financial firms and listed companies. Essentially, what the Task Force did was to look at how companies can understand and report on their exposure to climate risk. The idea being that when they have this information to hand, they can make better decisions. I opened our conversation by asking Mark to explain what climate-related risk is and why it's so important to understand it. As always, my email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Now, here's my conversation with Mark Carney. The reason when we think about climate related risks, um, there's two types, really. Uh, There's the type with which we're all familiar, um, whether it's uh, extreme weather events, typhoons, droughts, wind, etc., and which have been increasing with severity uh, and frequency over the decades, unfortunately. And uh, so it's not just anecdote. I I can tell you one thing from my previous life um, when as governor of the Bank of England, we oversaw the Lloyds of London and the so-called reinsurance industry, which insures against exactly these types of risks. Um, and they've gone up uh, three times in the course of the last few decades. And the cost of that has gone up five times uh, to them. So it's real money. It's real actual risk. So that's the type of climate related risk that we're all most familiar with. Um, but there's another type of risk, which is um, the which is called transition risk. So it's the risk from moving where we are today as economies, as societies, and where we need to get to if we're going to manage climate change. Um, And so a transition risk for a business is if a business, um, for example, an airline uh, um, has uh, high emissions um, and it's not renewing its aircraft to be lower emissions, it's not changing its routes, it's not uh, experimenting with blended fuels, it's not doing a series of things or it's not buying offsets in terms of forests or other uh, other other things to reduce its net emissions over time it's going to become less and less competitive because if we are going to as you know whether it's new zealand or the world if we are going to address climate change um the business models of companies are going to have to change right so that's clear um and Transition risk with the the thing that we have been concerned about us, whether it's the Reserve Bank of New Zealand um, or Bank of England, Bank of Canada, the regulators around the world, is that the financial system wasn't going to wake up to those risks until it's too late. So they would have a bunch of what's called in the um, in the I, I use other terms stranded assets. So they will have lent to businesses that actually aren't ready to adjust to where they need to get to for climate change. Um, And what we were trying to do with Mike Bloomberg, and I think Mike, uh, I'll tell you, if you want something done, give it to Mike Bloomberg and it gets done um, uh, because he did it in 18 months. Um, uh, But what is his task was, was to come up with a way for companies to disclose those climate risks. So in other words, not just the risk today, not just the impact today of a of a storm or a drought or those those types of things affect the business, but how prepared is their company for those risks in the future, for the adjustments in the future uh, that could come? And that's a big change. I mean, that was it, it. It sounded arcane, but you rightly picked up on it at the time. It's a big change because it's looking forwards, 
um, and it's providing information to the banks that lend to a company, uh, the investors that invest in a company, and actually broader society, stakeholders, citizens, if they want to look up this information to make judgments about you know, who's thinking about the future, who's acting in a way that's consistent with where New Zealanders want to go, uh, you know, people in the UK want to go, this, this, this adjustment towards net zero, and who's not. Um, and so we've come a long way since then, but we've got we've got more more to do, and it's helped uh, really set some, some of the foundations for the financial system to adjust. One of the things I remember in that launch was <clears throat> one of the other of you I I can't remember who was saying that in your estimation there were around the world trillions of dollars of unquantified and undisclosed risk sitting on corporate balance sheets. And one of the questions that I get asked around this is why why would why would a company want to disclose that? <laughs> you know, that sounds like a bit of a risk in itself. Yeah, it's um, well, part of it. These are risks in the sense of they depend on something else happening. So let's take an example of um, fossil fuel companies that um, continue to reinvest the money they make in new um, oil reserves. Um, and in some cases, I think we're all familiar that um, uh, the, the, the newest oil reserves are deep water oil reserves or they're, um, you know, they're, they're expensive to extract oil reserves um, and they may have high emissions associated with them. Now, if there's never going to be a price on carbon in the world, if we're never going to adjust, trans, uh, you know, move to electric vehicles, if, if the hydrogen economy isn't going to build up, then there may be money in those reserves. Um, there's also the consequence of that will be a burning those reserves will be a higher temperature, more extreme weather and the damage that comes with it. But the individual company might be okay. The rest of us might not be, but the individual company might be okay. Now let's turn that around. Let's say that there is a price on carbon that gradually increases, um, that fuel standards are gradually tightened, um, in aviation, in, in transport, um, that competing fuels become more and more efficient, whether it's solar or, or hydrogen. Again, I'll use that as another example. Then all of a sudden, the value of that, those oil reserves become stranded. It's no longer economic. Um, and, you know, we have seen, it's, it's interesting, even this week, um, when we're recording this, um, one of the major, major uh, companies just did a big write-down of their energy reserves, in part because of the current level of the oil price, which has been depressed because of the COVID crisis, but also because of the likely shift in fuel, um, fuel mix that is, is to come farther out. So, um, you know, if I have, and, and I'll finish on this, if I have a, um, an energy reserve, which has, um, let's say a 30 or 40 year horizon. Well, if, James Shaw is doing his job and the government's doing his job and your counterparts around the world are doing your job. The later years of that oil is going to be worth less because fewer and fewer people are going to be using it. And that's what creates the possibility of a stranded asset. And just to bring it back together to well, what was the Bloomberg work about this climate disclosure, it's to allow people to recognize what could happen and what is the order of magnitude of these uh, these types of risks, um, and then make judgments about whether it's a good idea to continue to invest or to lend to these types of businesses. Now, you were the governor of the Bank of England, as you said at the time. Why was the Bank of England getting involved? It's, it seems uh, outside the remit that you might expect from a central bank. Well, we have um, we have very broad remit at the Bank of England, and that was something that came out of the financial crisis, um, which hit the UK particularly hard. Much, I mean, it wasn't great in New Zealand, but it was much harder. We were really at the epicenter uh, of the crisis, and part of the reason we were at the epicenter of the crisis is, um, and this is a wonderful British phrase: there was there was underlap, um, not overlap. There was underlap. Uh, in other words, they had the Treasury. You had the then Bank of England, who really was only had responsibility for keeping inflation under control. Um, and then you had supervisors who really only had responsibility for making sure that an individual individual institution was OK. And what was missing in the middle were people thinking about systemic risks 
in the system. So they weren't joining up the dots. And, and this is all with the wisdom of hindsight. But with the wisdom of hindsight, uh, the, um, the UK government gave the Bank of England uh, quite considerable additional powers, additional remits, um, including, as I mentioned earlier, oversight of the insurance sector. So we had a direct interest in this because we um, are a supervisor of the insurance sector, but also um, responsibility for systemic risk. So what are the issues that could really affect the financial system? And our view was, um, and in parallel, we'd been tasked by uh, the G20 to look at these issues on behalf of the G20 in the, in the run-up to Paris. And our view was one of the biggest risks in the medium term was that the financial sector closes its eyes to the transition that's necessary in our economies in order to stabilize climate um, and just wakes up one day with a bunch of loans to the oil example, which I gave earlier, um, uh, and, uh, and, and then has to write off a bunch of those and then that has a consequence. And, and that's why, I mean, probably we'll hear more and more <laughs> over and over in the podcast, the word transition, 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 uh, because if you know broadly where the economy needs to go, where emissions need to go, then the financial sector can gradually reallocate capital in a way that supports um, supports the adjustment. So it doesn't mean shutting off lending to an energy company today, because this is you know the economy is not set up for that. But it does mean giving more money, lending more money, investing more money in the energy company that sees where energy needs to go, as opposed to the one who uh, thinks the status quo will will continue. So that's why that's why we were uh, we were engaged in it, and um, you know we're pleased that um, you know there's now a group of sixty plus um, central banks um, around the world uh, covering two thirds of the world's emissions who have formed a group that uh, look at all aspects of these risks, because I think, you know, it's, it's becoming mainstream to recognize that this is a, a core responsibility. Well, now that uh, interests me that 60 countries, because one of the uh, things I hear a lot in New Zealand is why would we be the only one? Why would we want to go first? You know, we're a pretty small economy in the grand scheme of things. Yes, we're an OECD country, but, you know, we're tiny by comparison to the UK or the US or Canada or, or even Australia, frankly, uh, or China. Uh, and it's it feels risky to be going first and to be imposing an additional cost on businesses and on the economy that nobody else is. What would you say to that? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. One is um, it's, it's, uh, just, I'll use a, I'll draw on my Canadian roots as opposed to, uh, <laughs> to my uh, UK role, which uh, there was a great uh, ice hockey player in Canada uh, called Wayne Gretzky and his core insight uh, he wasn't particularly fast and he wasn't pretty, you know, he wasn't big. He wasn't a big guy. He's, I mean, he's still around. He isn't a big guy, um, but he had incredible sense of the game. Um, and his whole thing was um, you go where the puck is going, not where it is. Um, and you look ahead where things are going. So I think you start from a position, whether you're New Zealand, the UK, Canada, anywhere, um, but particularly countries with the resources and the intellectual and the resources and the flexibility that our economies have and say, well, what needs to happen to stabilize the climate, whether it's at one and a half or two degrees or two and a half or three degrees, we need to get to net zero in order. And that's just the climate physics. At some point, we just have to get the stop the stock of carbon in the atmosphere from growing. You know, you all know that and your listeners will as well. Um, Okay, so that means we need to get emissions down, the flow of emissions down. That's going to happen at some point. Um, that's what society wants, actually. Um, and uh, are we going to be late? Um, and are, are our industries going to be late in a way that are we going to, you know, are we part of the solution or, or part of the problem? But also from a competitiveness perspective, including in the financial sector, um, if, if we come to that late, we won't have the skills, we won't have the loan portfolios or investment portfolios um, that are necessary in order to, um, uh, in, in, in order to, you know, solve the, solve the problem. In the end, you know, in the end, um, society and in, including individuals decide where we want to go, what we value, and the economy 
orients itself to deliver that. And, um, you know, there'll be banks and investors and entrepreneurs who will make a lot of money in, in fulfilling what society wants. And, and, you know, the UK, uh, if you go back to the history in the United Kingdom, um, there was tremendous innovation, entrepreneurialism, investment, profit in the industrial revolution. I think the sense in the UK where you could even in relative terms, you, I hear this argument from time to time. Um, the, the recognition is that in the sustainable revolution, those, those are, the scale of opportunity is, is similar. Plus, there's a degree of responsibility. I mean, I, um, it, you know, the history of uh, I'll use the UK as an example. I won't try and speak for New Zealand, but the history of the UK is not to wait around for other countries to do things. You know, um, I mean, if if we're going to be the 195th country to do something just so it's safe to figure out whether, I mean, that's not that's not leadership, and it's also not recognizing um, uh, the uh, as I say the the real opportunity that exists there. So, of those 60 countries, or those 60 central banks, sorry. How many of those countries are bringing in your proposal for uh, climate-related risk disclosure for companies? So the interesting thing, and before I talk about countries, um, say what the private sector is doing, which also, I mean, it goes back to our previous question or discussion, which is um, as of as we are talking today. The 25 largest banks in the world, um, nine of 10 of the top asset managers, the top insurance companies, pension funds, et cetera. If you total up all those balance sheets that they control, it's $140 trillion. And that just doesn't sound like a big number. That is a huge number. That's twice the size of global GDP. Um, and, um, and of course, the, the investors um, like the um, pension funds and others are, are at the forefront of this. So they want this disclosure. These the people who are providing the capital want the disclosure. Um, and now what's happening as you know, it was only five years ago, Paris, when we were there um, and less than five years ago, I guess. Um, so it took a couple of years to get the standards there. And we've had a couple of year, two years of companies issuing that that type of disclosure. And now it's getting to the point where countries are saying, OK, now we'll turn something which is voluntary into something which is mandatory. You know, we've, we've learned the lessons of returning mandatory. And that's one of the things we want to do in the run up to COP in Glasgow, which will be November of 2021, as you know, um, which is to set out the pathways so it's mandatory, so, the, so the, the, the companies can adjust to it. What we're seeing is um, places like the European Union is um, actually that legislative process. They're not waiting for COP. That legislative process is underway. Uh, in Europe, in in the UK, the the regulator is um, saying to companies, you, you either do this or you explain why you wouldn't do it. And since a bunch of the investors want it, it's a pretty awkward conversation not to do it. Um, in my native Canada, the, just with some of the COVID um, um, uh, support packages, um, they've tied them to having this type of disclosure. You say, look, if you're going to take money from the government, um, and we should we'll, we'll probably talk a bit about this uh, in terms of company strategies coming out of COVID. You've got to at least do this type of disclosure. Um, and uh, and then the last thing is that we're working with um, the regulators. There's people who provide the standards. So what Bloomberg did, the Bloomberg task force that we started with provides recommendations. These are voluntary recommendations for what companies should do. And it really develops this up. But of course, there are accounting bodies and very worthy who provide the standards. These are the things that accountants have to follow. Um, and we're working with them about how to translate private sector recommendations into formal standards. So uh, there's a lot of momentum uh, behind this, and it, which is good because we want, you know, if you've got a, a company in New Zealand that's disclosing and is managing these risks well and, and seeing the opportunities, um, you want a global investor or a bank to be able to reward that company relative to somebody, say, in another jurisdiction that isn't. So the question about mandatory versus voluntary uh, you just raised in, in in that piece, which was one of the again one of the questions. So we have recently finished consulting the public on whether yeah. to move towards a mandatory comply or explain regime. Uh, 
And we had a lot of questions about, well, what, why should it be compulsory? I mean, if a company sees that there may be some risk there, wouldn't it be up to their board or their management team to go and determine that? Why, why would you have a mandatory regime? You do it. You do it for a couple of reasons. I mean, the, the core of it is consistency. Consistency across companies uh, to to a standard. Um, you're also what you're disclosing um, under the standards includes how you govern these risks. So one of the questions, which look, I could put a shareholder resolution in at each AGM uh, to ask these questions. But who in the board is responsible for oversight of climate related risks? Do you have a process for that? Um, how is compensate? Do you have metrics for managing these risks um, as a company? Um, uh, is compensation related to executive compensation related to that? Do you think about different scenarios? In other words, um, for your business, if um, if the carbon price were to increase, or or maybe more directly, um, you know, fuel um, mandates were to change, would it affect your business? Have you thought about those questions? And candidly, the answer to all those questions can be no. Nobody manages the risks. No, we haven't thought about these issues. No, we, you know, we, it, we just don't think it's relevant. We as a company, that's fine. That's disclosure. Your investors and your banks um, can think about whether they think that's prudent management of it. And that is different than, um, and this is, and, and part of this gets to this distinction between physical risks did my was my supply chain disrupted by you know adverse weather in 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 asia um or if there is regulatory change in europe for example and i sell into europe um have i thought about that and how much does it affect my business um and you know as there's momentum and there is momentum around a number of these issues um those questions are increasingly are increasingly going to be asked. And so you want a common way of, of answering them. And again, the answer can be no, I don't think I'm a company. I actually don't think these are, are, are risks, but then you're having a, a dialogue with your shareholders and your banks. And, you know, and the, if you're a public company, the broader public is, can look at that and form judgments about, um, uh, you know, whether they want to be uh, customers of yours. So the implication uh, of what you're talking about is that the, this sounds like it could be an enormous lever for change because in making these risks public or available at the very least to investors that you could be shifting colossal amounts. You're talking trillions of dollars of investments away from things that might be regarded risky like fossil fuel investments into things that would carry less risk like say renewables. Where do you think the divestment movement fits into this? Well, I think the, um, I, I'll say two things. One is um, the change comes from the interaction between where people want um, companies to go, um, our economies to go. So how much do people value um, the environment addressing climate change? And then where is government policy likely to go? So it's, it's the combination of those, you know, the desire. Ultimately, we decide where we want to go is whether we're in, you know, New Zealand, New Zealanders decide in New Zealand, we decide in, you know, Canada, the UK, where, where we want to go and, and in the system. And it uh, gets there. Um, but the interaction between the two, the information plus, um, plus the policy, if I can put it that way, uh, gets there. Now, in terms of the divestment movement, so one of the issues is so this doesn't per se say you know i disclose and all of a sudden i'm an energy company and i'm going to get rid of all of my oil and gas tomorrow because i've disclosed future risks about that energy but it does get make an informed conversation about well when do i think let's say i'm a an electricity generator and i've got a mix of fuels um uh, you know from from coal all the way through to renewables well how long do I think I'm going to burn coal? How long do I think I'm going to uh, have uh, CCGT or gas-fired plants? When is the transition between those fuel mixes and and um, you know renewables and which types of renewables, et cetera? How am I thinking about that? Um, and uh, the 
there are those who um, investors and 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 uh, other financial institutions, individuals certainly want absolutely no exposure to certain types of energy. Okay, they would rather just have pure green energy. Um, but we we start with the economy where it is, and business where they are. And uh, we're, you know, for this to be a smooth transition, we want to start early, know where we're going, um, and get steady movement uh, across the whole economy. I mean, we can't, we're not going to get to net zero by just jumping overnight to 100% renewal. I mean, with very few exceptions, there are exceptions in terms of some economies and, and provinces and things in Canada, but we, we can't just jump to 100% renewables across the board. Um, and there are going to be um, companies that are planning for this transition to net zero um, and making efficiencies and planning on step changes, you know, at, at, at points in the future. And, and, and the disclosure gives you a sense of that. Two things you need. It's first the disclosure of where companies see their current and future potential climate risks. And secondly, a transition plan, which says, well, what am I going to do about it? How, how do I seize, how do I manage those risks, but also how do I seize those opportunities? Um, and then you make a judgment on it. And I think one of the things that we're um, seeing in the U, well, more broadly, I would say in the UK, but more broadly is that, look, because of COVID, um, it's a pretty rare company that doesn't have to, at a minimum, update its strategy or change its strategy because so much is changing in the way consumer demand is there, what's happening to supply chains, um, um, the uh, the weight of debt that companies have had to take on. So, you know, you need a new strategy to deal with that. Well, if you're in the UK or New Zealand or 120 other plus other countries that have net zero objectives by 2050 objectives, well, it's pretty odd that you'd have a strategy and you wouldn't have a strategy for net zero. I mean, it's a reasonable question to ask. The answer to that question could be, I'm going to run my business off for the, over the course of the next decade, right? Because I actually don't think I get, okay. That's a, that's a strategy. It's an answer. Um, an answer that says, I'm just going to do business as usual and I'm going to ignore what society is asked. Um, I'll again, speak from the UK perspective. Every single party in the last election ran on net zero. It's legislated. It has consequences um, for commercial decisions as court judgments around certain things not being allowed because they're inconsistent. So it's pretty unusual. It would be pretty unusual. I think the question is going to be asked. And because of disclosure and other things, it has to be answered. Um, and it'll be interesting. Let's, let's use a neutral term. It'll be interesting for a company who says, well, actually, I know that's where the country wants to go, but I'm just going to ignore it. I'm, I'm interested in a couple of things in what you just said there, one of which is that uh, people are taking um, – maybe I misheard you – people are taking companies to court because their actions are inconsistent with the UK net zero law. Is that is, – did I read you the, right? Uh, there was a court judgment on the um, third runway at Heathrow. Um, which, I mean, somebody must have uh, put the injunction. I, I, I didn't follow the exact uh, dynamics, but certainly knew the judgment. But the judgment, which came out after the legislation of net zero, said that this was inconsistent with that uh, and was blocked uh, as a consequence uh, as a consequence of it. And I think, look, I, I'm not the expert on that exact judgment, but it was it was presumably the way that there was no mitigation associated with the increase in traffic that would have come and therefore was inconsistent. So you start to, uh, you do start to see that. Yeah. Mm. That's interesting because we last year passed our own Zero Carbon Act modelled largely on the UK's own legislation, uh, which has been around for sort of 10 years or so. Um, uh, but because it's only just passed and it, it passed unanimously, so that's, that's, good news in terms of its future durability. Uh, but we haven't yet gotten to the point where the courts have started to make judgments that, you know, they, I guess they haven't had the opportunity, right? There haven't been any cases yet that have come up in front. Um, but it's interesting to see how that how that's starting to, to play out over there. Now, can I just ask you, you've got a role now. You left the Bank of England uh, just in time for COVID. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, you've got a well, role now. Just to be clear, you, I didn't leave. Yeah, yeah. I didn't run away. <laughs> uh, as as the prime minister's uh, climate change advisor on finance, I think lead, leading into COP twenty six, and and you were saying before that part of what you're trying to do is to galvanise uh, different. Um, central banks around the world to, and, and by extension, their governments to start to bring in climate-related uh, financial disclosures before COP26. It, what, what, what's, the, what's the significance of COP26 here? Well, I think the um, – and you're, you're more expert uh, than I, and, and I'll just say on the role – I'm advising the UK Prime Minister, but I'm also the special envoy for the UN Secretary General. So that it's so it's really for the COP process. I'm working for the COP process and on on issues related to the private financial sector. So the types of issues that we've been we've been talking about. Um, and James, you I mean you're an expert in this. You've lived it. There's a there's a rhythm to COPs, and every five years or so, it's they're they're, they're um, not all cops are created equal. I mean, and with all due respect is at least in my experience. And, uh, and, and so Paris will have been five years ago and it'll be a little more between Paris and Glasgow because of the COVID, uh, situation and the postponement. But, um, it at a minimum has the review of how much progress the world has made since Paris and, and a very high level of ambition of what else needs to be done in order to be on track. Um, so it's a very important COP and it has a high ambition. And the reason it was postponed um, was uh, to maintain that ambition. I mean, just a recognition that with logistics in November, likely to be as they are, um, that we wouldn't, we were less likely to get success than if we took a bit more time. So that's the good news. What we're, what we're doing is uh, it's really three big buckets. We've talked about the reporting. So um, uh, the disclosure, so it's working to make sure those those rules are as, as, as fit for purpose as possible and then developing these pathways for mandatory. Uh, the middle one is around risk, and that's working with the central banks and others so that the expertise is developed um, amongst banks, insurers, but also central banks and their supervisors as well in terms of how do you really manage these climate risks? How do you think about the different pathways the economy could be on and What's the right way to manage? I mean, it's an emerging field, let's put it that way. And the third thing is around um, investors and uh, the returns, because you know, there's huge, huge opportunity here. Um, and there is a variety of ways of classifying investments, uh, whether or not they're green or not, uh, where, uh, where, they, where they fit on the so-called ESG, the environmental the social governance uh, spectrum. Um, uh, and also the way we think about it is where do they fit in in terms of the transition, the transition from where we are today to the net zero we need to get to companies and, and economies in the world. Um, and so we're working with um, investors around the world to try to come up with the best ways to analyze that and communicate that to, you know, the people listening to uh, this podcast, right, which is. You know, you're investing your money, uh, you know, all of us, you know, pools of money, which whether it's in the bank or it's in a pension, a pension pod or um, uh, what we would call in the UK an ISA, you know, a little uh, you know, tax free uh, investment account. Um, uh, is that money invested in something that is consistent with where we all want the car, most of us want the economy to go, which is towards net zero. Can, and, and how do I know that is the case? Like, how is it ex explained to me uh, in a way that's uh, understandable and uh, consistent across uh, different pools? It's not beyond the wit of uh, individuals to come up with the solutions, but what we, we need to have a process that gets us there. And then related to that process is, um, is channeling this dynamic that's happening in the financial system globally, which is more and more the question is being asked of companies is what's your transition plan? So what is your plan to go to net zero? Um, and, and what makes a good transition plan and what doesn't? And so that that's the essence of the work, um, which is um, it's a lot of convening and catalyzing and channeling of experts um, uh, to specific questions so that we can have a, 
a consistent approach around uh, around the world. You said that uh, not all cops are created equal, and I, I I would agree. Some are a bigger deal than others, uh, and or certainly have a higher kind of public interest, if you like. What what do you think is so significant about COP twenty six? I think it's significant in several respects. One is that uh, it's the updated, um, you know, five years on from Paris or on from Paris, and countries are due to come with their updated plans for emissions emissions reductions. These um, they're called NDCs is the is the acronym, uh, but that that is significant. So the question is going to be how much ambition, you know, do we get in that healthy competitive dynamic, if you will, of, uh, of high ambition of, of country plans. Um, and, and, you know, everybody moving together is, you know, there's the strength in, uh, strength in that. So that's a key element. Um, another key element is, um, is the, uh, is this work on private finance? I mean, I would say that, but, um, is really having the, <coughs> having, um, the foundations in place for the global financial sector and local financial sectors so that climate change is always taken into into account in these professional financial decisions. Just like, you know, I mean, I used to work in private finance before I did the public sector work. And you always sat and thought about, well, where could interest rates go? And if you're lending to a business, large or small, you think of, well, are they going to pay me back credit risk? Um, but you also want, if, if there's any sort of time horizon on the, on the investment or the loan to also say, well, how could climate change affect this? How could changes in climate policy affect it? Is this company ahead of the game or behind? Are they winners or losers in that scenario? Are they part of the solution or part of the problem? And just to have that in, and look, if I'm buying a six-month treasury bill, um, you know, New Zealand treasury bill, it's 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 not a big deal. But if I'm investing in uh, a new plant or um, you know an energy source or something, it's 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 everything. Right. And 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 it's everything in between. Um, So and then I think the third thing is which we saw in Paris, but has developed even more, which is that you have the national, you know, the government level things and the private finance is an example of this. But in between, you have business coalitions, you have regional governments and other coalitions of very high ambition. So um, subnational governments, they're called, as you know, but uh, so these can be mayors or states or provinces in various countries that actually have a lot of influence over these climate objectives. And so um, them setting in place what they're trying to achieve. And uh, part of COP will have what's called the race to zero which is a series of industry coalitions that are being developed across different sectors of people signing up, companies signing up to get to net zero, what's best practice, what are the technology issues and making it clear and, and really having strength in numbers in that. So it's, it's pretty, it's pretty comprehensive, I would say. And sounds quite exciting. One of the things of course, that we're up against is time. You know, we're, as we say, COP26, that's 26 years, uh, slightly longer, of course, in this case, as you said, because of COVID. Um, and the 1.5 degree report that the UNFCCC put out uh, two years ago suggested that we needed globally to cut our carbon dioxide emissions, at least, our greenhouse gas emissions, in half in the next 10 years. Do you think that that's probable given the scale of what we're talking about and uh, you know the foundations that you're talking about in terms of things like this disclosure regime and the shift in investment and government policy and and so on we're going to make it it's an open question i mean it really is an open question it depends on what uh um it's it's possible um and uh, it's going to depend on government policy. It's you know it's going to depend on ambition. It's going to uh, depend on people voting with their with their with their dollars, their hard-earned dollars, whether it's in the kind of products they buy or the uh, investments they make or people make on their behalf uh, with their pensions and and savings and others. Uh, it will depend on our scientists and entrepreneurs to come up with uh, solutions. 
but you know, there very much is a, you know, there's a virtuous cycle here. The more serious we are about it, the more, you know, the, 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 the better brain power, the more time and attention is focused on these issues. Uh, the more some of the technological issues will be cracked. I mean, we're, uh, you know, it's well known now. Um, it wasn't recognized even a couple of years ago, but it's well known now that, um, you know, solar and wind um, are, uh, you know, have, have crossed over that threshold of being competitive in and of themselves far faster than people would have expected, governments would have expected. Um, you see the early stages of that in, in hydrogen, um, and it's a question of, you know, scale of ambition. I think the more focus there is on these issues, it's it, it will highlight, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting the way it, it, it can be portrayed different ways. And it's, I, I don't want to get into sort of amateur psychology, but it depends how you look at the world it can be portrayed as quite, you know, here's a problem, which is that the cost of, let's say in hydrogen, the cost of electrolyzers, the separation of the hydrogen uh, from the other molecules uh, has to come down a certain amount, but that's okay. So that means that if I can figure that out as a business, I'm going to make a lot of money um, or, even if I'm not motivated by that, I'm, I'm, I'm going to solve this issue. So I'm going to spend time on that. And the more it's likely, and we're already seeing this even in the last few months where a number of uh, initiatives coming out of COVID are saying, well, we're going to ask for a hydrogen blend in 2025, or we're going to put money in hydrogen research, or we're going to do this. The more that's there, the more we get our young scientists, entrepreneurs, people who invest money focused on the sector, a lot of smart people working on it and et cetera, and it moves. So I, I, and, and, and the other thing, James, is the more it's understood that um, the carbon budget is a budget, it's a stock, not a flow. So it's great. Um, one level hasn't been a great way to do it, but that emissions are down 8% uh, probably this year globally. But there's still emissions. They're still increasing, as you know, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, which means we're still using up our budget. Um, and we have to get that flow of emissions, as you know, to net zero. And so what are the big choke points? Um, so part of what COPs do um, and having that cycle to COPs is that it focuses attention on these issues, you know, these longer term issues. And 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 I'd like to think that with with virtuous consequences, you know, self-reinforcing consequences. You, you mentioned COVID a couple of times. Uh, we haven't talked much about it, but it is obviously having an extraordinary impact on the global economy and on individual countries, societies. Uh, the, you know, it's, it's an extraordinary event. And I know that there are some countries that are saying, okay, we, you know, it's clear we need to stimulate the economy, get people back to work. Uh, we're going to deploy significant amounts of capital. Uh, New Zealand is one of those countries. We're putting a lot of dough into it. Uh, and, and others who are just saying, well, you know, so sorry, therefore, let's put that to work on issues that deal with long-term challenges, right? Uh, and then there are others where it's like, okay, well, you know, we need to stimulate the economy um, we, and we need to do that as fast as possible. So let's just do whatever kind of activity gets things back to the way they were before. And I'm curious about the balance of what you're seeing in terms of, you know, what might be called green recoveries as opposed to just bog standard recoveries. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's exactly the conversation that's, uh, we're certainly seeing that conversation being had uh, around the world, um, governments around the world, stakeholders around the world having this. Um, and the sweet spot, of of course, is something that is um, uh, an initiative that um, grows jobs, has multiplier impacts, you know, through the uh, through the economy. So not just jobs in the sector itself, but more broadly, um, and also is uh, promoting sustainability and, you know, People reach for things like, um, uh, with good reason, uh, things like building retrofits and, um, you know, types of measure, measures like that, that, that hit all of those um, requirements. Um, I think that um, the early returns are actually uh, quite encouraging in this regard. 
um, if you look at, and I'll use the example of, um, of what's, uh, the European proposals. So, uh, if you look at the most recent German, um, mid, well, I'd like to say mini budget, but it was 130, 140 billion euros. So it wasn't, it was pretty big. Um, uh, almost 40% of that could be classified as consistent with sustainability. Um, and when you look at, if you just go back to, um, the uh, global financial crisis. So, you know, a little more than a decade ago, um, one of the big initiatives at the time was, a uh, you know, the lovely named cash for clunkers type uh, in Germany, I'm saying in Germany uh, approach where, you know, bring in your old car and, you know, we'll stimulate demand for new uh, autos. Um, there is nothing for the conventional auto industry in this. Um, there's a lot for zero emission vehicles. Um, there's Germany, which, you know, obviously tremendous engineering prowess and a great auto industry has been a little late on this issue, um, but see where the world's going. And so the stimulus is point that aspect of stimulus is pointing in that direction. Um, uh, it's not finalized, but the European presidency proposal for the, the sort of pan European response, the 750 billion euros. So, again, huge, huge number very heavy um, component of that is is towards a sustainable economy, including a hydrogen, uh, a hydrogen economy uh, developing that. So uh, we are seeing that um, increasingly around the world. I'll, I'll, I'll give a benchmark if I can. So sort of post the financial crisis, um, and I was involved in, um, in government and central banking at the time in, in Canada, and the mantra was shovel ready. It was anything we, you know, that's just give me the plan and we'll, we'll, we'll push it out the door. Um, and across the OECD, it was about one in six dollars was spent consistent with sustainability. Um, you had economies like Korea, South Korea, who spent about three quarters of their stimulus. They had the same issues everyone else had, but they spent about three quarters of their stimulus on sustainability. And, you know, I mean, it's not. Absolutely, you could draw the direct line, but it was a contributing factor. And they're one of the world leaders now in wind and other renewables. And part of that spend was exactly in those in those sectors. So, um, you know, this is your world, not mine. But governments have to balance that shorter term and the and the medium term and the strategic. Um, there are things in the shorter term that are sustainable and job heavy and multiplier. The strategic is really important. And let me just reemphasize that point, which is that um, I said a bit earlier about so many changes with COVID companies are having to update, if not change their strategy. One of their questions is going to be is, um, well, am I on net zero? Is my government serious about these transitions? If they are, then I should orient my investing investment that way. And that way, you know, by by providing the direction to the economy, some of it with your money, putting your money where your mouth is, some of it with regulation, some of it with these things in the financial sector, it says to private investment, okay, so this is where we're going. This is where I want to put my money as my company. This is, you know, these are the solutions I want to try to uh, get uh, on behalf of other people and, and, and be profitable in doing so. And you have a huge multiplier effect. Um, and, you know, it's there are many, many terrible things. I mean, none of us, you know, I mean, uh, it, we were all experiencing uh, and, and great difficulties with COVID. Uh, but it has the advantage of having a reset moment of step back, take a look. Where do we want to head? Now, let's get on and do it. And um, so I think the those fiscal events in the, in the course of the next year will be ex exceptionally important for that reason. Mark, I hope you'll forgive me for, for saying this, but um, you don't seem like much of a hippie. Uh, have you always been worried can't about tell, climate can't change? I'm on a podcast. <laughs> I could be uh, got beads and long hair. <laughs> well, just your typical central banker. Uh, I, I'm, I'm curious about how you, have come to the whole issue around climate change. You know, was was it something that has always been of concern to you? Did you stumble across it because the Bank of England was given a mandate to cast its net wide? Where does it? How how did you? Because you're clearly, you know, you're now trying to galvanise the whole world uh, to take pretty radical economic action over the course of the next decade. 
Well, I think, um, uh, I, I, you know, my personal journey, you're asking me a personal journey question. I've always, I've always avoided these things. Um, uh, I, I think like a lot of people, well, I'll just speak for myself. Um, I was aware of the issue. Um, to some extent you think one uh, on issues, one can be, get in a position where you think, well, some, obviously somebody's going to deal with this. Right. I mean, it's such an important, I mean, it's obvious someone's going to deal with it. And then you, and it creeps up and you realize that actually it's not moving fast enough. Um, and it's not comprehensive enough. And, you know, if the strategy is to sit around and hope that, you know, Elon Musk comes up with cold fusion, um, and you know, if anyone could, he could, I guess, but, um, you know, that's hope is not a strategy, uh, as, uh, as my friend Larry Summers always reminds me. So, uh, uh, you got to have a strategy to deal with it. And, um, and uh, yeah, it, w- given the responsibilities of the bank and that creeping realization, I guess, crystallized for me that, uh, okay, we need, if, if we're going to address this, what do we need to do? Um, and I do believe that, uh, uh, you know, it's, it is, where the people are, I mean, are incredible. They come up with solutions, they figure things out. And when you get the mass of, you know, uh, younger people, um, engineers, entrepreneurs focused on issues, uh, they will find solutions. And if society decides that this, it wants this solved and it is deciding across the world that it, it does want it solved. Um, our responsibility, you know, my responsibility as a technocrat is to put in place the sort of foundation so that finance can help be part of that solution. Um, and that quote, radical change is not, I mean, this is not back to the stone age type change. It's, it's change for a cleaner, more efficient, more enjoyable, um, way of, uh, way of living and, um, you know, preserves the pristine beauty of New Zealand for, uh, future generations, which, uh, you know, who can't be, who can't be in support of that? Well, I'm here for it. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, the reason I asked you the personal journey question is because, you know, recently we've had this tremendous outpouring from young people, uh, you know, particularly teenagers, actually, um, but, you know, young, young people more broadly around the world and here in New Zealand. And they have been joined by their parents and, you know, uncles and aunties and, and so on and so forth. Uh, um and and I guess the question that I've got is, you know, there might be a perception that climate change is a concern of, you know, a particular type of person or a group of people, but not a broader concern. Um, and so we've spent most of the last hour talking about the role of finance and business and innovation and divestment and so on, which are not normally kind of groups of people or categories, I guess, that you would normally associate with radical climate action. Uh, and so my question is the extent to which it is a, a personal journey or whether you're seeing something more widespread occurring. I think it's, uh, no, I think it's, it's definitely widespread. Uh, and it's, look, this is, this is headed to the mainstream. I think this, uh, I, you know, I'll put it in the language of uh, I don't know how big your financial listening public is, uh, James, but uh, uh, this is a massive commercial opportunity. Um, and I think, you know, there's a bunch in finance that recognize that these are risks to be managed. But equally, if you sort out hydrogen, if you sort out carbon capture and storage, um, if you uh, if you anticipate where climate regulation is going, where carbon pricing is going, um, there you're not only doing good for the planet, but there's there, there's money to be uh, money to be made in that regard. So uh, and uh, you know up and down. I'll, I'll just speak you know in terms of the city of London, people recognize that um, and they see this going mainstream very quickly. Um, so uh, I think it's quite broadly held. I think it also what's interesting about it and what's exciting. You know, one of the things sorry to get into sort of finance detail. But one of the things that's happened over the course of the last 10, 15 years is there's been a pretty steady move towards what's called index investing. So I don't want to think about which particular stock to buy. I just want to own the average of the market. Um, 
And there's a lot of value to that. Um, but in the end, somebody has to sort of oversee companies and, you know, reward the good ones and, and not and punish the bad ones, if you will. And uh, this is uh, part of the reason why this is quite interesting to the financial sector is it takes real judgment. It's a new type of, you know, thinking about climate, thinking about who's ahead, who's behind, where those opportunities, these are sort of breakout opportunities um, for the sector. So, um, you know, summarize, I, I, it's, it's, it's going main, it's coming mainstream, it's coming and it's coming mainstream uh, very fast, which is why we need to get these tools in place so that it's done in a way that is um, as effective, uh, as effective as possible. I find it easy to get excited about. Uh, both because I'm the minister for climate change, so it's my job to be but excited about it. I have I have been accused of that. Um, although uh, my first professional job of any significance was at Price Waterhouse, which about six months after I got there became Price Waterhouse Coopers and you know PwC and so on. And and it's been interesting. To, I I left there 20 years ago, but it's been interesting looking back at that firm and the transition that it has gone through uh, during, you know, that that 20 year period. Um, but of course, because it was an accounting firm, uh, it's straight into much of the stuff that you're talking about, right? And one of the first things that the first partner that I worked for said is, you know, what gets measured gets managed. So it was, you pay attention to those things and change starts to happen. Um, so so like I say, it's easy for me to get excited about, uh, but not everybody, you know, comes from that world or lives in that world or wants to live in that world uh, and so on. Uh, look, I I'm um, I have found this uh, absolutely fascinating and, and I'm interested in as we gear up towards COP26, like you said, there's a lot of different countries that you're working with to try and marshal momentum and so on. My country has a population of 5 million, so fewer people live in New Zealand than in the city of London. Uh, and yes, we're an OECD country, but in the grand scheme of things, not that big. And some of the numbers that you're tossing around, you know, our, our GDP is about 300 million New Zealand dollars, um, which compared to even some of the companies you're talking about, you know, doesn't quite match. What would you say to people in New Zealand about the extent to which what we do matters? Well, I think the, um, it, I mean, it matters. It matters uh, tremendously for a couple of, I mean, it matters on a local level, but also, I mean, New Zealand has been, uh, I mean, I always think of New Zealand, aside from, you know, spectacular place to be, very good at rugby, all these sorts of classic examples. But in terms of policy innovation over the years, New Zealand has really led many, many of the OECD metrics. I'll take in my world, um, uh, which I admittedly, the central banking world is a very narrow world, but uh, the, you know, New Zealand pioneered, uh, got there just before Bank of Canada, something called inflation targeting, which is how I mean, it's this, the gold standard for how central banks are run around the world. And that came out of New Zealand and spread, um, spread across uh, as, as one example. I think, the, um, I think we all watch with great interest on the, um, and learn on the, on the happiness and you know, the welfare um, uh, you know, approach to, um, uh, to budgeting and uh, thinking there. So the, the, the types of innovation, people are looking for best-in-class innovation. Um, I also think that the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that needs to be cracked, there's many things, but nature-based solutions are also going to be incredibly important. And so, um, New Zealand, you know, has a, has an important role to play there just as, as Canada and others, uh, you know, will, and many of the emerging and developing economies will. Um, so I wouldn't underplay, I mean, you got to do what's right for New Zealand, um, but thought leadership, innovation, Will spread very quickly out of um, out of New Zealand. Uh, you've got a track record as a country of which you should. You know, it's not the nature, but of, of you to trumpet it. But uh, uh, you got a track record of which you should be proud. So when you do things, people pay attention um, and think, well, you know, they're smart people. <laughs> if they're doing that, they might work, and we'll we'll follow it and uh, and I think adopt uh, very quickly. Which again gets to the point, which is 
yeah, but you're a step ahead because you've adopted a bit earlier than others and that, and that gives an advantage. So, um, and I think, I guess the other thing I, I would say in terms of, you know, the, the sort of moral force and the, um, um, you know, part of COP processes like copper, everyone's better together and up in the ambition together. And so, um, what you do will make, um, other countries, um, not just look to use the policies, but also to raise their game. Mark, thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been a fascinating conversation and, uh, I hope that we have the opportunity to see more of each other, uh, in the run up to COP26. Yes, I hope so too. And I, I thank, thanks for having me on. Um, anytime, James, and, and once we're allowed in, I know we're not exactly welcome at the moment, but uh, uh, when we're allowed into New Zealand, but at a minimum, we will see each other in Glasgow and, uh, and hopefully uh, at a triumph in Glasgow uh, together. So thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you to Mark for joining me. Feel free to get in touch anytime. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Next week, I'll be speaking with the legendary environmentalist Jane Goodall. I look forward to seeing you then. is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.